It's hard to believe that we've been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. So many great conversations over the years about so many great movies. All that said, producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. Becoming a Next Real member gives you access to all sorts of additional and exclusive content. Plus, you're helping us keep the lights on. Just head to thenextreel.com slash membership, where you can learn more about becoming a member, which costs a measly $5 a month, practically the same as one fancy coffee drink. And you get so much more. Every month, we record a bonus episode exclusively for members. Those episodes cover movies from whatever series we're covering at the moment, or add to previous series. Some movies we've covered that only members get to hear us discuss include The Blues Brothers, The Russia House, Naked Lunch, Independence Day, The Hot Rock, and Relic, the better one. Plus, members get to vote on what we're going to discuss for those episodes. We also record additional pre- and post-show content in regular episodes that only members get to hear. Like conversations about similarly themed movies. And answering listener questions from our live member chat. Speaking of our live member chat, we record almost all of our episodes in Discord, where members can chat right along with us live. Members get access to other members-only channels in our Discord community as well. On top of all that, members get all episodes a full week earlier than everyone else in a private Next Reel feed just for them that includes all the shows in the Next Reel family. The Next Reel, the film board, movies we like, sitting in the dark, and more new projects on the way. To top it all off, members don't have to listen to ads. We've already eliminated those annoying, dynamically inserted ads that, let's face it, we all hate it. We are listening to you. We love podcasting for a living, and those ads help to pay the bills. Now, we're counting on you, dear listener. We promise we aren't going back to those terrible, dynamically inserted ads that don't relate to us at all. All we ask is that you consider supporting the Next Real family of podcasts with a membership. Again, it's $5 per month or $55 per year. Just head to thenextreel.com slash membership. Thenextreel.com slash membership. Get your access to early, ad-free episodes with bonus content, member bonus episodes, and access to member channels and live streams in Discord by signing up today. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to the next reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Streetcar Named Desire is over. I don't want realism. I want magic. Hey, Stella! No actor in history has ever made such impact in a single role as Marlon Brando. In Tennessee Williams' Pulitzer Prize play and Academy Award motion picture, A Streetcar Named Desire. Who do you think you are, a pair of queens? I just remember what Huey Long said, that every man's a king and I'm the king around here. And don't you forget it. Fighting, lusting, loving, never for a moment less than completely alive. A man who had two women living in his house, reacting to his savage appeal. But talking about his desire, just brutal desire. Vivian Lee, in her Academy Award-winning role as Blanche. <laughs> 
Kim Hunter in her Academy Award-winning role as Stella. You don't have to leave me, baby. A story ripped from the fabric of life, as earthy and violent as its unforgettable star. Let's have a little fast. The movie's fine. Okay. <laughs> the movie's fine. It's okay. <laughs> Off on a strong start. <laughs> Off on a strong start with Streetcar Named Desire. No, it, uh, Streetcar Named Desire, 1951. Wildly, widely considered one of the greatest films uh, of all time. <laughs> it's yeah. it, lauded as a good movie. What's your what's your history with Streetcar? I this is only the second time I'd seen it. I can't remember the first time I watched it. I had rented it likely because it was one of those films that was always on best lists and stuff and I'm like I finally need to watch that. And I watched it and I agreed. And then I kind of I just I had it in that place like yeah that's a great film. Hadn't thought about it a whole lot. Um and and then we were building these lists and um, I know we kind of built this one specifically around, well, two things, Death of a Salesman and, and Strangers on a Train. But the fact that this also was able to be on this list kind of gave, uh, you know, it thrilled me because it gave me the chance to revisit this. And I had forgotten exactly how just explosive and how much energy is in this film and just like the the fascinating characters. And it you can just, you know, feel everything that's going on. It was just um fantastically constructed and put together i really really enjoyed it had a great time with it and i'm definitely glad to have had a chance to revisit it uh what about you my history with it is is more with the uh the play tennessee williams play i've seen the movie a couple of times uh two three times maybe and i find that the movie is one of those movies that when I am watching it for specifically for performances, like to see what human beings can do to create emotion and energy on screen or or on stage, I think it's fantastic. Uh, to, if, if I step back from that, there's not much story to it. Like there's not enough story to it for to to m- kind of maintain attention and focus. So I sort of have to watch the the depth of those performances uh, because those are what keep the thing alive for me. I recognize that it is it is one of those movies that is just really celebrated for the stellar cast. I mean Brando and Kim Hunter and Carl Malden. Oh, Nebishi Carl Malden. And Vivian Lee, of course. I, I recognize that there's a lot to celebrate there. But but again, I I find it's it's one of those weird movies that I recognize all the parts are extraordinary. And I'm still bored. Really? Yeah. Interesting. I am bored to tears through this movie. It is a great movie that bores me. To tears? That's like heavily yeah, bored. Yeah, not tears. I'm not crying. I'm, I'm too bored to be crying. No, it's an easy movie for me to want to go full teenager and pick up my phone. Like, I just, I'm, it is a fight for me to pay attention to this movie. If Again, I'm not saying that it's, I don't love the movie. I'm saying I don't choose to put it on as like, you know. I don't love the movie. It's fine. I had never seen the play. So, I mean, I don't know if that reshapes it. I mean, I'm assuming that you feel the same about the play then. Again, depends on the performances, right? I've seen it with a couple of different casts, and I 
I find, like, particularly Stanley, you know, if you get Brando's why I watch this movie, because I think this is so much so much of a like the tentpole to method for him like this is where people i think really discovered that he has a he has a way of approaching authenticity and physicality in his performances that is different and so i i think that is the the important piece for him because he took what was such a theatrical part and a theatrical performance and he made it he fashioned it for film and that has to be acknowledged when talking about this movie because that part is like he made it something that sparkles on screen like when i watch marlon brando when i'm really focused on brando it is like i think he's extraordinary i think he's just extraordinary um and un- unlike anything that we, you know, had had been watching before, obviously, I wasn't born yet, but I just know he he was sort of the uh, a, a pivot point in how people approached, uh, you know, particularly in hindsight, how people approached performances of this sort. And so I think Brando's fantastic. I feel like the movie's you know, it's easy for me to get into the spirit of, OK, you know, it's a movie about in-laws who stay too long. Yeah, so, so you'd pick a Christmas vacation a hundred percent every time. I know I went to I went to the the easy one for you there. <laughs> I <laughs> I uh, I absolutely agree. I mean, Brando is electric, and it's just it's stunning to watch him on screen. And just I don't know. As I was watching this, so often I was trying to think about like how many of these little detailed movements and things that he did on screen repeated from take to take, you know, because some of it seemed so at a spur of the moment that it didn't even feel like it, like it, it just felt like there's no way that in a different take, he tried to grab out of the air a little floating feather from her boa that uh, or her um uh I, I guess it was about i don't know it was a feather or a little bit of hair from her you know her uh, mink i'm not exactly sure but you know there's this point where he just kind of tries to pick it out of the air and i'm like there's no way that that happened in another right. tape like what are the odds of something like that and then just like watching him smashing things and throwing things and just the way that intensity just kind of comes out of nowhere sometimes i i can only imagine like acting opposite him or directing him how every time it feels so fresh and new and different and you i mean it really is something that puts everybody who's working with him uh, and anyone who's acting this way like fully in the moment because you have to figure out how to react to that and it's just it really is kind of astonishing and i can imagine for kazan it's like it's always the concern for the director when you're working with this of the idea of continuity and will we be able to ever cut from one shot to the other uh, based on what, what Brando is doing. But at the same time, you also, I assume have to acknowledge that Brando understands the craft of film enough to understand the idea of continuity and, and has to be providing something that has some continuity so that the, the film can actually put, be put together, which is very different from acting on stage. Well, and if anything, we know of of Kazan from just other Kazan films. Like he he's 
the perfect fit for this show, right? He's the perfect fit because he's he's like the Brando of directing, right? Like, I have to imagine it. continuity is even a, a, a lesser concern for him than figuring out what the grab the feather is in each take. Like, what is the emotional spark, the improvisational, heavily character-driven spark that he's going to get out of these people? Then, you know, he'll figure out how to, how to tie it all together later, but just get the emotion on celluloid. Uh, I, I think he's he's the perfect fit for it. Well, and obviously coming from the stage, you know, Kazan directed the original Broadway production and had as the cast three of these four, you know, Marlon Brando, who is pretty unknown at the time, Carl Malden, Kim Hunter, they all came from the Broadway show. Jessica Tandy was the only one that that did not end up getting ported over from Broadway. They ended up casting Vivian Lee because Again, none of these names were really enough to carry a film, and so they wanted a name, and so they brought Vivian Lee over, who had been playing uh, the character of Blanche over in London. And so they brought her over because of the name, and you know, at the time, she's getting higher build for the film, and I think that certainly shows. I think she's just as powerful as he is. I, having Kazan already know this story inside and out, having directed on Broadway, made perfect sense to then say, hey, why don't you come direct this film version as well? Yeah. So about Vivian Lee, uh, what is your take on Vivian Lee's performance? I mean, it was just very powerful, very um, uh, a great surprise. Having seen very little of her in film, you know, I, I generally go to Gone with the Wind. I think most people probably go to Gone with the Wind as one of her primary performances, but she certainly has been in plenty of films. You know, it's not like she was in any shortage of them, but this film is probably the second one that I would be thinking of with her. And I think just she seems maybe perhaps a little young for the part. I could tell that they were trying to like make her look a little older, you know, but they again wanted that name. And it's such an interesting character. She's our protagonist through the course of the film. We're pretty much following her through the whole thing. And it really is just a kind of a tortured portrait of a woman who has kind of lost herself and is just trying to figure out how to hold on to anything as her, you know, you don't know exactly what is going on with Blanche. Is it something in her is in her mind? Is she suffering some form of uh, of of a break of some sort, kind of a, a mental uh, break? Exactly what's going on? Certainly, being left alone to kind of manage everything, being driven into prostitution and losing all of her property and everything was a big element of this character. And I just, I was in it. I, everything that she was doing was incredibly powerful. And the end, uh, when they're walking her out and when she takes that arm of the doctor as he, you know, is acting all gentlemanly and takes her out. It just, I mean, it's, it's just a heartbreaking final moment of a film. And I just, I, I don't know. It really was, uh, you know, as powerful for me as Brando was. This, I think this gets to, I'll agree with all of that. Although I, I find Vivian Lee a lesser uh, sort of casting choice than everybody else in the film. I, I really, I, I think if I struggle with anybody, and I didn't really struggle, but if I struggled, it would be with Vivian Lee. But the, here's the thing that I struggle with in the film perform adaptation of this compared to some other, um, you know, stage 
choices that I've, I've seen made. And I think this is this is just the choice they made, right? It's all about choices. In the film, to me, it feels like the pacing from her being a daffy sister-in-law coming in and stirring up conflict in the relationship and in this particular location. They lean on that heavily, I think, far too long in the film. And if you can imagine seeing stage performances where it feels like the director realizes that she is dealing with some significant emotional damage earlier in the film. So by the time she's taken away, that feels more earned, right? To me, it's by the time we get into the sort of the the last 30 minutes of the movie that it feels like, oh, now we're really leaning in on the fact that we're talking. This is this is also a play about or a, a story about mental illness. This is a story about trauma, PTSD, and it moves very very quickly to we've turned you into the docs. We're committing you to an asylum almost as a as a uh, you know epilogue, and that feels rushed to me. That's one of the things I really struggle with, and I think that's a that's a choice that they made in 1951, and probably in the original run of the play, maybe out of necess- cultural necessity. I don't know. But I think I think it does greater justice to the character in Streetcar that we have a longer run of the the sort of um, the struggles that she's she's had the way she portrays this character as potentially more damaged earlier. I, I, I just feel like it's better earned. And so I struggle with that in the movie. It feels like at the end we rush toward committal. And that uh, to me is always comes as a bit of a surprise. I, well, and that's interesting. I, I guess for me, I really felt pretty much from the start that there was something with her uh, in, in the way that her character acted, reacted. There was something already broken in her. And I felt that they did a good job of kind of exploring that over the course of the beginning of the film, building to kind of the, the later story with the revelations and, and, and everything as Stanley kind of keeps digging and probing and learning more about her history and confronting her with it. And I, I felt all of that uh, worked. And for me, I, I went along with it. I, I found the, the journey for her character slowly cracking over time. I, I thought that it actually was it was pretty powerful, and we're learning all those little bits and pieces of. We find out about how she had been married earlier, and I guess it's more uh, spelled out in the play that her husband had been homosexual, and she had caught him uh, like you know sleeping with another man, and that kind of broke her, and then it led to her husband killing himself. Uh, and so that was a big part of it. And that led her to, again, sleeping around apparently with everybody in town, including, unfortunately, a 17 year old boy who, you know, that was really the thing that, that where everybody drove her out of town. And so you could see how that moment led to her breaking. And so I, I don't know, for me, I felt that we had that, that build. Uh, but I can see that. I can see how that could be something, um, that certainly, because I mean, we're spending, a a large amount of time with Blanche Dubois in the film. She is our protagonist. You know, we're seeing everything pretty much through her eyes over the course of it. And so I can imagine that if if you're not quite clicking with all of those uh, those elements from the beginning, that all of the pivoting that we're suddenly doing in that last part of the film suddenly can come as a bit of a surprise. 
that I, you ju- I mean, you just described it. I, I feel like that's the thing that that her and and I also think that that maybe um, you know I'm I'm this is a movie that's easily spoiled, and if you know more deeply where her trauma comes from that she instigated the suicide of her husband like like that that just feels like a weighty enough uh, a, a weightier sort of sense of of trauma to me than what we got from her and like losing bell reeve the economic struggle the legacy of family it's all there it's all good but she plays third act the way she would have played it had we had all of the the stuff that they cut from the play. And I, I don't think those two things balance out. I think that's that's where I struggle with the adaptation. That's what it is. It's an adaptation quibble. I have adaptation quibbles. Uh, the other element, uh, I, I think, is an interesting element that plays into the end that I think, you know, there, there are a few things that the National uh, Legion of Decency and the production code kind of pushed them to censor a few scenes one again was kind of the the bit about the husband's sexuality also about the fact that she had been intimate with so many men back at that place just and it's changing lines you know for a lot of that but also a little bit of kind of the implication that stanley rapes her toward the end which makes that end all the more kind of devastating and dark when we see that they are committing her largely we're assuming based on Stanley's decision to do so. But it's also like, well, he also just raped her and now he's committing her. And it's just like, it really takes everything to this incredibly dark place when we're seeing where things are going. And so it's interesting, like we have such interesting dark characters, but, and so that's another dark element that we can see when, when she's getting committed at the very end. I mean, Certainly, she is having a lot of emotional issues and needs help. But, I mean, what's what's your position on kind of everything, the way that it portrays everything that had built based on that final confrontation between her and uh, Stanley? This is all incredibly important because it's not just about, like, these characters in the room where it happened. It's also about, like, look at the way Stanley's character is a clash against the old South. Like, this, him raping her is a testament to the fact that the old South is dead, right? Like, to me, that's that's what the, the film, the story itself is screaming. And her tragic demise is is a parallel to the tragic demise of Belle Reeve. Uh, the fact that that's the pivot to her sort of mental breakdown is the thing that that gets me there to having that third act play well. The The challenge that I have is maybe that it's not dark enough, because I think the baggage that she has... I, I think I just prefer, but yeah, again, adaptation quibble, quibbles. I could say the same thing over and over again. So uh, it's it, Stanley's brutal. Stanley's a brutal character. And I think we need to see that in force. Well, is it adaptation quibbles that uh, based on, you know, what we're saying, like our directorial choices, or is it really adaptation quibbles that were kind of forced upon them per the production code? For sure. And I, I sort of armchair this, like what, what does a recent, I haven't, I mean, have there I know you're going to talk about sequels and remakes, but but I you know I have this is this is the one that I have seen on screen, and so you know if there are others, I'm very curious how they handle adaptation, not as remake of this, but as adaptation of source, because there's there's just more material to be mined, and to to take this to the 
the true indictment of the complexity of the cultural, political, and economic center of the South. And, or, or I should not say center, New Orleans was not the center, but the peripheral to Old South and what the, the power in the South represented as it changed. Another twist that, that happens in the film that didn't happen in the play, which also, I suppose you could say, softens the blow a little bit, was at the very end, you know, we have Stella outside with the baby as she watches Blanche get taken away by the doctor and the nurse. She says, you know, I'm never going back to him. She takes the baby and she goes upstairs uh, to Eunice's place. And uh, she's like, I- I'm-, I'm done. Which you know, I suppose in the way of not letting your your uh, antagonist win certainly fits with the production code type of story. In the play, however, she stays, and and it's a much bleaker ending. You know, she kind of denies the fact that Stanley might have raped her sister, but she stays there, and I, I think that's even darker. Like there are so many dark elements in this story. What I like about the film other than that ending is you can read all of those other elements in there like they hint enough to to give you a sense as to what had been going on with blanche's husband that there had been this rape when when stanley after stella goes to the hospital and stanley attacks blanche like you can interpret all of that that ending however is a definitely clear ending that is pretty spelled out. And it was interesting to see. I didn't know how the play originally ended. And so seeing that there was that change as well, I I can certainly say I would kind of like to see these darker elements within the story because I think that is kind of what really this story is about. It's just like this, this, the darkness in these people and, and uh, Stanley just, oh, wow, what a what an incredibly dark, frightening character. Yeah, for sure. This is a sad, sad movie that like the, the movie is the, the story itself is important because of its bleakness, because of its hopelessness. And I, I think the dribble of hope at the end is a dribble too much. Right. The, the point is everyone here for one reason or another is trapped. And the fact that Blanche shows up um, as a, a sort of destination of almost last resort is yet another testament that the changing times become a trap for everyone involved. And Stella just got there sooner. And, uh, and, and then, she, you know, Blanche ends up the sort of ultimate trapped as she's taken away and, and committed to the asylum. So I think it's I, I think it's meant to be unsympathetic to the the place where the characters are are stuck and and that's the that is the most important thing of the movie and i think it's absolved a little bit when she goes upstairs it's really the 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 change the biggest change character that we have in the film well <laughs> i mean I, I maybe in the play in the film obviously we have that change at the end with stella as she makes a decision to change but i definitely think that there is this new view that mitch has right at the end as he ends up uh, almost forgiving Blanche for, as he sees it, the wrongs that she had done with having, you know, slept around so much and all that stuff, which is why he left her. And not that he was together, but they were kind of seeing each other. And, uh, you know, I, I think that there is that element at the end where, I don't know, it makes me wonder if 
the big change character is Mitch. And perhaps from this point forward, like maybe he's not going to be playing poker with Stanley anymore, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think Mitch is one of those characters like... I, I don't know. He's he's kind of troublesome in his own way. Like he's trapped too. He's more sympathetic than Stanley for sure, but he's trapped too, mostly because he's he's the the expression of weakness and he, manipulation. Like he's the one who who can be manipulated because he's naive, right? And when Blanche needs him, he's not there, right? And and so uh, that that is also. Uh, a, a problem and one of the statements of the movie, right? That that w- women are objects to be possessed and he, you know, takes on that role just as easy as anyone else. He does, except for at the very end when she's being taken away by the doctors. And that's where I'm saying, like, perhaps that is going to be his final change. Because, yeah, I mean, he has that very dark moment where as as he's confronting Blanche, it's almost like he is going to take her. Like, he's now viewing her as that slut that everybody else calls her and wants to abuse her and dump her just like everyone else has. Uh, it doesn't end up happening, but certainly there's that dark darkness to his character that we have briefly. Um, I just think that maybe at the end he's finally seen the light and realizes that there's that Stanley isn't this good guy and he's you know perhaps that's the change he needed to get away from him. Then again, it is a dark story. Maybe he never gets away, right? I mean, that's kind of a big theme in this movie. And and I think that's the point. Like the movie gives us no hope. <laughs> like there's no there there's no hope of of like further change because again everyone's trapped. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What uh, what do you make of the title? Uh, you know, I guess it's it is is based on an actual streetcar named Desire that ran through uh, New Orleans French Quarter. I, I guess by the time they were filming it, it had already been dismantled in in and they were put a they put a bus line in instead. But um, do you see much in the name? of the of the play and the film that kind of ties into kind of the themes that uh, that are being explored here well i i think it's funny um that it's ele- the 11th word of the script that gets us to the actual title of the of the film. <laughs> i was wondering i had that in my notes oh pete's gonna love yeah. it <laughs> they said it 11 words i i had to count so there you know i mean it's both symbolic and literal right like uh, apparently there are two streetcars in the french quarter that take the other one of them is desire and the other one is a streetcar named cemeteries and once you take those names and put them in this movie and you talk about like the the entrapment of the the french quarter at this time right it starts to mean more things, right? It's like you can try to get to your place of peace and you desire to have, you know, all of these these things. But ultimately, the only other route out of there is to death. And so I think that's really interesting. Every character has their own route into the French Quarter. They all desire something that got them there. And um, and now they the only way out is death. So I really like it. I do think it's interesting that she, I, what was it called where she ended up? The sisters play, it's Elysian Fields, which is also Elysian very fitting. Fields. They, they yes. go from desire to cemeteries to Elysian Fields, which is very much like the journey through death, you know, getting buried. And then your final, you know, final place of peace is Elysian Fields, which very much could be 
at the end, you know, her final resting place, you know, she's gone through all of these things and now she's been taken off to this, um, you know, mental institution, wherever it is that they're taking her as this final resting place for her to, to be. But it's, I, I think it is, it's an interesting name because it's all very directional, but at the same time, you know, in the way that Tennessee Williams just even worded that line at the beginning of the film, it really gives you this sense of journey to death and peace. And actually where they're going is a giant ring in the sky with Matt Damon. <laughs> uh, eventually. Eventually they will get there. You didn't even know that Streetcar was sci-fi. It's a sci-fi prequel to Elysium. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Uh, the, the child that she has ends up growing up to be Jodie Foster. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. That's the one. We, we've mentioned Kim Hunter. Haven't talked about her much, but she plays the iconic Stella. And, Stella! Um, you know, my my experience with Kim Hunter, I mean, she'd been in a lot of TV episodes, like one-offs here and there that I'm sure I've seen over the course of my life. But largely, it's the Planet of the Apes films, which, of course, we covered the entire original five films from that series. And I just have such a love for her in that in that film, in that role. Yeah, this is, uh, you know, kind of uh, a big start for her, too, because, again, coming from Broadway. I mean, how does Kim Hunter work as Stella for you? Oh, I love Kim Hunter in this role. I really do. I think she's I, I think she captures the sort of enabled behavior uh, of of the entrapment like she is. She is central to sort of emotionally luring Blanche, even though we know Blanche is ending up there for many reasons, a bouquet of complicated reasons. One of those reasons is the fact that that her sister makes it feel like a safe place, and it is not a safe place. And it is a, a place that Kim has been gaslit and abused and emotionally abused, certainly. Um, if not, we have to imagine literally abused, physically abused by her husband, and um, and yet she has completely convinced herself that this place is is safe, and this she's eager to show it all off. Um, and so, you know, I think she's, I think Kim Hunter is fantastic at at you know embodying that that message in the movie. It was really an effortless performance. Like she just feels so much of this world and in that part that it was uh, just perfect. And yeah, she's, she carries everything that you just said. I mean, it really, I don't have much more to add because it's exactly that. Like she fits into this world. She buys into everything Stanley says, like everything about her. You can see in the very first time we meet her at the bowling alley when, when Blanche comes in and she points Stanley out and she's, and we look over at Stanley and he's like, I don't know if he's getting in a fight, but he's like throwing stuff around and he's arguing with some <laughs> other bowlers and stuff. And she just looks at him with loving eyes. Oh, isn't he just, isn't he a dream or whatever she she's said? It's like, wow. Bamboozled. Okay. She is completely bamboozled by this guy and she sees how handsome and how kind he can be and, and finds it so easy to forgive the rest of it. And that said everything to me right out of the gate. Fantastic. Right out of the gate. You're exactly right. Yeah, I think she's wonderful. We're here for the for the original or for the black and white cinematography. That's the reason we are here. It is, of course, our fifth of five nominees in the 1952 Academy Awards for Best Cinematography, Black and White. Harry Stradling, 
is the DP of this, um, somebody that I know largely because he did some of uh, Hitchcock's um, late 30s, early 40s films, and then did a number of films with Kazan like this and uh, Facing the Crowd, which is another stunning film. And other things like, you know, My Fair Lady, Funny Girl, Hello, Dolly, a lot of things with uh, Streisand. What did you think of the cinematography? Uh, How does it fit with the way that the film is being told? Totally great. I think it's really, really great because what Stranling does does here is use some fascinating, really noir techniques, right? Lots of low angles, lots of smoke, lots of of fancy lighting and and super dramatic lighting and shadow across faces and all these incredible, like normally reserved for crime dramas, right? And he uses them to articulate the sort of damage of the space around us and the intrigue of the space around us. And I think that works very well. I think it levels up the message that we get on the stage. I think this technique, this style, this strategy levels up what we normally see on stage. And it is a unique gift to the film version that we get to see these choices at play. I think they make it, they actually they are the, the cinematography is what makes this thing energetic for me like in apart from the, obviously the big there are big moments but um for me i i really think it's i think it's great well and it's interesting it opens up the film I and mean, that's what they say a lot with plays when it's adapted you know it's your what can we do to open it up so it doesn't feel so trapped on the stage there is a little bit of that like we have the bowling alley we have the train station when she arrives or, or the trolley station or whatever the streetcar station and uh, we have the the exterior of the place like the street out in front of their house at elysian fields and so there are a number of places which isn't a lot but at the same time this really felt cinematic to me and it felt a lot less stagey than some other, uh, you know, adaptations from stage that I had seen. Like it really worked exceptionally. I think Kazan knows how to place the camera, work with the, the actors on screen, cinematically close-ups, uh, you know, tight angles, wide shots, depth of field. Um, interestingly, I read that for the, the set for this house that we're in, he actually, over the course of the film, slowly shrinks it. So over the course of the film, we're looking at this fairly rundown house that they're living in, but it's getting tighter and tighter and tighter until the end. It, it, we're really feeling it's putting us into that headspace of Blanche as she's feeling kind of more and more trapped over the course of it. And I that fascinates me. And and you, can, you can't necessarily see it, but you can definitely feel it. And I think that just goes to how Kazan, along with uh, straddling are using the camera to capture this so brilliant what a brilliant choice that is i did not i had not read that i think that's fantastic uh fantastic choice to to bring those people together i think it's that is really great and you know i, I we've so we've talked about let's see what were the the other play adaptations we I'm, I'm thinking mostly about death of a salesman because you opened with that one and one of the things that we got in death of a salesman was it, from time to time set pieces that looked like and were were sort of manufactured to i think look like a play right they looked like sets like the backyard at night yeah right exactly exactly and and i never got that feeling from this set right this this entire like the way they they handle the french quarter is alive and there are always things going on to look at the space the the frame feels full no matter where we are i think it's extraordinary 
it makes it that much more exciting because it's interesting. Like you look at the cinematography here paired with death of a salesman, again, another uh, adaptation from stage that one goes into a lot more of our protagonist's headspace as we're kind of seeing everything that Willie is seeing as he's going into his delusions and his flashbacks. And we're reliving all of that with him. And we're kind of like in that subjective camera as everything is dark and Dutch angle and everything. This one, we're not so much going into that subjective headspace, but the way that Kazan and Stradling are using the camera in the space is still putting us there without actively putting us there. And I think that's what made this um, such a surprise for me. Like, just there were some shots. There was one where Blanche is, um, you know, one of the fights with Stanley, and she's like, she goes and starts hiding behind the, the sheer drapes and just having, the way that they shot that over her face, you know, is just like this, you know, flimsy shield of protection that she had found, but it was just so mesmerizing the way they captured it. So it just, I mean, it's just exciting filmmaking here, really. Yeah. Yeah. And when he comes in and screams at her, like his, just the way his face comes into the frame and fills it with his just open mouth is obviously it's a thing that we see a lot in montages. We also see him standing in the rain screaming Stella. I think it's interesting that he's screaming Stella as the signature montage material in this movie. But ultimately, how important is it to the relationship with our protagonist, Blanche? It's, it's really not. I just think it's funny that we end up screaming Stella as a as a moniker for this movie when we really are listening to Blanche. Yeah, but, but I think it says so much about the relationship that Stanley has with the women in his life. And he is completely abusive to Stella. I mean, this is right after he had just hit her. And she goes up to Eunice's place and he's calling out for her and crying for her. And that's all she needed. And she comes back down to him and they make up. Whereas I think there's, you know, that same energy blasted against Blanche. I mean, to a certain extent, it's just as damaging to her. It really kind of ends up driving her to this mental break that she has and um, the eventual rape and the, um, you know, sending her off to the institution. Yeah. Interesting. Do you want to talk about the music at all, Alex North? Alex North's score is fantastic. The jazzy, it feels so much of the space, kind of that New Orleans vibe. It's kind of this dark, noirish jazz. Um, It is just a score I love. I just love this music. And it's interesting how much more memorable I find this than A Place in the Sun. And maybe it's just because I've listened to this score a lot more than A Place in the Sun, but I love this score. I likely would have picked it voting uh, at the Academy over A Place in the Sun. But um, again, now I need to go re-listen to A Place in the Sun to get my my uh, that back into my head just so I can really fairly judge it. But as it stands right now, I would say this is my favorite of the five that we've talked about. I, it is for me too. And, you know, I had a friend and fellow film professor at the years ago who was a I should say fellow professor who was a professor of film at the university and he he always had this one at the very top of his syllabus because he says it's both a fantastic score first of all straight up but it's also a real hallmark in how to use score for drama and jazz as a style is both perfect for the the French Quarter, but also uh, allows some really interesting techniques uh, as the narrative changes, right? Being able to artfully and 
completely within the uh, genre use dissonance to reflect emotional states is all over the place in this movie, right? That each character, it's practically Peter and the Wolf, right? Every character, character's emotional journey has its own fantastic jazz underpinning. Using those those sort of elements and those techniques as as a fantastically competent, clearly composer, um, I, I think Alex Norris makes something that that transcends just the the score itself, but makes the movie more so as a result. This is this is one to learn from if you're if you're a composer. So uh, I think it's really really great. Yeah, absolutely, love it to pieces. All right, well we'll be right back, but first our credits. The Next Reel is a production of True Story FM, engineering by Andy Nelson, music by Ido-K, Oriol Novella, and Eli Kaplan. Andy usually finds all the stats for the awards and numbers at d-numbers.com, boxofficemojo.com, imdb.com, and wikipedia.org. Find the show at truestory.fm, and if your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, please consider doing that for our show. Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. All right, sequels and remakes. Have I seen them? Well, uh, there are no sequels to this. And regarding <laughs> this, it's really the play as far as uh, uh, remakes, other versions. And uh, interesting, a lot of filmmakers incorporate this, the play into the film, like uh, Pedro Almodovar um, in the film All About My Mother. Um, the the um, lead character is performing this play in the show. Same thing with Sleeper, Woody Allen's film. He and Keaton end up late in the film taking on the roles of Stanley and Blanche. And Woody Allen's film Blue Jasmine, uh, it seems to be a little bit of a loose adaptation of this. 
interestingly, in the scope of prequels, there actually was a short film made by the written by the novelist Andrew O'Hagan. And as part of Young Vic's short film series produced in collaboration with The Guardian in 2014, uh, Gillian Anderson directed and starred in it. It's called The Departure. I haven't looked for it, but that would be an interesting one to see what they did with that. As with a lot of these, there has been an operatic version made, a ballet. There was a a 1955 TV version uh, with Jessica Tandy and Carl Malden that was uh, specifically just highlighting all the scenes between um, Blanche and Mitch, I I guess just as a way to show, you know, how great she was in the part. In 1984, there was a TV remake or remake, a a TV version of this made that starred Anne Margaret as Blanche, Treat Williams as Stanley, Beverly Beverly D'Angelo as Stella and Randy Quaid as Mitch. And then in 95, there was another version based on the Broadway revival. The Broadway revival had Alec Baldwin and Jessica Lange. They were the only two who came over from the stage production. This one had John Goodman as Mitch and Diane Lane as Stella. And, uh, you know, again, a lot of places this has popped up. The Simpsons have spoofed it. Um, You know, an episode of the originals, has a bit with it. So, I mean, it's kind of all over the place as an element of culture that people are always referencing. That's crazy. Well, I, I feel like, you know, we're, this is the reason we're here. It's award season. So give us the rundown. How to do this film had 18 wins with 15 other nominations at the Oscars. Uh, Brando was nominated for best actor, but lost to Bogart. This was, to, we've talked about uh, um, the African queen, which is what Bogart won for. We've also talked now about Death of a Salesman with Frederick March and A Place in the Sun with Montgomery Clift. We have not talked about Bright Victory starring Arthur Kennedy. But of those four, where do you stand? Well, I mean, as much as I've I've talked about my mixed feelings about the overall movie and my adaptation quibbles, I, I hope I led with the with the thing that is most important to me, which is Brando is sparkling in this movie. I feel like he's best actor. I mean, you can see where this is a year that likely the performances of Clift and Brando and perhaps March really split the vote, leading to Bogart winning. Yeah, I don't think I mean, I recently revisited the African Queen just for this very purpose of kind of looking at these performances. And I enjoy Bogart in the film, but all three of the other performances are better than Bogart. And I I would have been happy seeing any of them take it i certainly after revisiting this think uh, personally brando should have won but i would have been fine with any of those other three and now i'm really curious about bright victory that arthur kennedy did that's a trickier one to find yeah um carl malden was nominated for his performance in, in a supporting role and won beating out kevin mccarthy in death of a salesman how do you feel with that one i like carl malden in this movie and i think he is saddled with a challenging part it is a really challenging part to be both sort of intermittently despicable and part of the culture and also being the more sympathetic character so i'm i would give it to malton too yeah i I would too vivian lee won best actress uh beating out among others shelly winters in a place in the sun and Catherine hepburn in the african queen i easily go to vivian lee for this Uh, i would put shelly winters second i haven't seen the other too but oh no i take it back eleanor parker in detective story she was also yeah fantastic i just watched that what a film that was i had never seen it but really exciting film but still vivian lee i mean it's just hard to go wrong with her in this for me 
But I know you she you had more issues with her. I feel like it's Shelley Winters for me, but that's that's just, you know, that's where I am on the movie. I'm an anomaly. I'm a mystery. Best actress in a supporting role, Kim Hunter won for her performance here. We talked about Mildred Dunnock in Death of a Salesman. I also, uh, again, recently watched Detective Story. Lee Grant was nominated for that. Uh, but again, Kim Hunter, just so good in this. Uh, where do you stand uh, opposite Mildred Dunnock, though? Because she's she was pretty good. She was pretty good. I think I'm, um, you know, I think I'd be Mildred Dunnock. I oh. think I'd give it to Mildred Dunnock. Uh, speaking of the complexities of challenging a, a difficult role, yeah, I like I like Mildred. All right. Even though I love Kim Hunter in this movie. I really do. Yeah. Oh, she's fantastic. Absolutely. Uh, the film won Best Black and White Art Decoration, decoration Set Decoration. It uh, lost Best Cinematography. This is why we're here, to A Place in the Sun. Out of our five nominees, we have now talked about all five of these. A Place in the Sun, A Streetcar Named Desire, Death of a Salesman, Strangers on a Train, The Frogmen. Where do you stand as far as that? Do you think A Place in the Sun should have won? What? Wither the Frogmen, Andy. Wither the Frogmen. <laughs> Uh, of the five that certainly is the one that's like oh okay interesting <laughs> why is nobody exactly why is nobody talking about the frogman that extraordinary piece of film i don't know <laughs> i feel like uh a, a place in the sun is pretty extraordinary are you are you this are you streetcar uh no it is a really hard line like Part of me really wants to say Strangers on a Train. I just, I loved what Robert Burks yeah. was doing in that film. But, I mean, all four of those, I mean, I, I kind of, looking at other films that were released in 51, that I would have said, oh, I would consider that instead of The Frogmen. I probably <laughs> would put uh, Orson Welles' Othello up there for sure. And uh, maybe Ace in the Hole, like, you know, I think those two films uh, are very strong that have more interesting cinematography. Again, the Frogmen, technically, the fact that they were able to capture such amazing underwater cinematography for the time, I absolutely understand that. But I just think some of these other films may have had better black and white cinematography. And so I certainly would dump the Frogmen and put one of those in there. But of these others, it's it is such a hard race, like all four of those are so strong for such different reasons. You know what? You actually you actually swayed me just by saying the words strangers on a train. I think I'm going to go strangers on a train. And the only thing I can think about is just the way they captured feet in that opening sequence as a way to bring us into the movie. Like using the camera to do such interesting things is uh, I, I think strangers on a train nails it. Uh, we've got all of the great elements. We've got all the noir. We've got all the energy of the train. We've got filming in compressed places. And so I'm going to go Strangers on a Train. Wow, look at that. I know, you changed my mind. Okay. Uh, it was nominated for Best Costume Design Black and White, but lost, lost to Edith Head for A Place in the Sun, which I certainly think is a fair loss there. It was uh, nominated for Best Director, Kazan was, but lost to George Stevens for A Place in the Sun. And then we had it nominated for Best uh, Music, We've already talked about that. It lost to A Place in the Sun. Best Picture lost to An American in Paris, which kind of like Best Actor, I kind of think that perhaps when you when you have A Streetcar Named Desire and A Place in the Sun nominated, again, there's Decision Before Dawn and Quo Vadis, two films I haven't seen, but I could imagine that there might be a split between a Streetcar and Place in the Sun, which led to An American in Paris being uh, the winner. 
it's possible. I mean, it's also people might just love the colorful singing and dancing in that film. Mm-hmm. It lost best sound recording to the great Caruso and Tennessee Williams, who adapted this from his play uh, for a screenplay lost to a place in the sun. I mean, Tennessee Williams, uh, we haven't really talked about Williams at all in the scope of Williams. Where does this stand with his other works? Have you seen a lot? Well, I mean, there's certainly more plays. Yeah, obviously. I, I feel like the one that, that I always turn to when I'm tasked with a Tennessee Williams conversation is Cat in a Hot Tin Roof. And I think the adaptation uh, with um, Paul Newman and Elizabeth Taylor is it's fantastic. I mean, it's really fantastic. And I don't pick up my phone at all. Also because Burl Ives is in it. Come on. Burl, Burl, Burl Ives, Ives. Is, who I love uh, yeah. so much and then scares you to death in that film. So. It is really, really great. And I think it's kind of on par in terms of popular opinion between these two. Like, it's really the choice between Streetcar and Cat in a Hot Tin Roof. And I think I'm just a Cat in a Hot Tin Roof guy. I need to uh, revisit that because that's one I haven't seen in a long time. I probably watched it in proximity to this. Um, I have seen very few Williams. I've never seen Williams on stage. I have only seen of the adaptations this I think I've seen the rose tattoo, but if I did, it was like in college and I can't remember a thing about it. Cat on a hot tin roof. And that's it. Like, so really two, maybe three Tennessee Williams properties. So I am sadly short on looking at different projects of his. I need to check more of them out. Yeah, I I have read more Tennessee Williams than I've seen uh, just in terms of going through theater classes in college and so you know the ones that really stand out to me are the ones that i've i've seen uh performed and you know those two streetcar and and cat in a hot tin roof suddenly last summer he's really really great yeah yeah uh, well, anyway, over at the BAFTAs, uh, Vivian Lee won Best British Actress for this, and it was nominated for Best Film from any source, but lost to The Sound Barrier. And over at the WGA Awards, Williams was nominated for Best Written American Drama, but lost to A Place in the Sun. Okay. Well, I think what we have is an opportunity for you to demonstrate your spreadsheet acuity by telling us how it did at the box office. For Kazan's production of Williams' play, he had a budget of $1.8 million, which is about $21 million in today's dollars. The movie opened September 19, 1951, and ended up becoming the fifth highest-grossing movie of the year, earning $4.2 million domestically, which is about $49.6 million in today's dollars. All told, it was a great success, landing with an adjusted profit per finished minute of almost $229,000. Not bad, 1951. Not bad at all. Uh, well, it's a it's a movie that's complicated for me. I celebrate a lot of the pieces as a whole. It really gets interesting in the, as as in and around Brando, and uh, is not my favorite. I'm glad to have revisited it because I really it, it's something that I had kind of forgotten. I mean, I, also I don't think it's one that I'm going to watch a lot, but at the same time kind of was an easy watch for me. I just, I started it and was just instantly in it. Like the performances, the characters, the the look, the direction, easy watch for me. Glad to have revisited this. Definitely something I will check out again. All right. All right. Well, with that, we will be right back for our ratings. But first, here's the trailer for next week's movie, kicking off our 1965 BAFTAs Best Film from Any Source series. We're looking at Beckett. Beckett. 
It happened in Canterbury, England, eight centuries ago. A story as ageless as time itself. The immortal story of a man called Becket, who earned a king's most trusted friendship. Business, my lord. Who shared his most intimate secrets. I must say I adore my French possessions. They're certainly worth recapturing. Until Becket the man was made a bishop and his king lost him to God. of one of the bitterest personal feuds known to history reveals the heartbreak, the conflict and conspiracy that engulfed the lives of a king and the one man he favored above all others. Starring Richard Burton as Beckett. Peter O'Toole as his king. I would have gone to war with all England's might behind me and even against England's interests to defend you, Thomas. I would have given away my life laughingly for you. Only I loved you, and you didn't love me. That's the difference. Human passions at their best and their worst. Quick, out through the window. They are revealed in the story of Beckett. Here are the escapades that brought a blush to their country's face as they wenched and brawled their way across the pages of history. stinks a bit, but we could wash her. What would you think of it? Cleaned up a little. Richard Burton as Beckett. You are my lord, God or no God. I would have come with you, for you had taken my heart before you captured my body. Beckett, the man of the world who became Archbishop of Canterbury and enemy of the king. Gentlemen, it is a supreme irony that the worldly Beckett the profligate and libertine should find himself standing here at this moment. But here he is, in spite of himself. Peter O'Toole, brilliant star of Lawrence of Arabia as King Henry II of England. Supported by a cast of stature and eminence. John Gielgud as King Louis of France. Donald Wolfett. Pamela Brown. Martita Hunt. Beckett! Always Beckett! I am a woman. I am your wife. I am a queen. Get out of bed of you. I wrench with bored over the sight of you. To that devil and my whole family if you have you. Will no one rid me of this meddlesome priest? are all around me cowards, like myself. Are there no men left in England? Jealousy, akin to madness that breeds incitement to murder. Vengeance that bites into the very flesh. One does not carry arms into God's house. John! What do you want? Your death. The story of Beckett is recorded here, right up to the last brutal, bloody act.
It is hard to believe we've been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. You're telling me producing this show week after week is so much fun, but it does require a lot of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. The Originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals links to the source material for all of our adapted film discussions. Purchasing through our links supports the show. In Season 13, we explore various awards categories and the films nominated in them. We wrapped up our 1940 Best Picture series with adaptations of Mice and Men from John Steinbeck and Wuthering Heights from Emily Bronte's novel, not to mention the play Dark Victory by George Brewer Jr. and Bertram Block. The 1947 Academy Award adapted screenplay series featured Anna and the King of Siam based on Margaret Langdon's book, plus The Best Years of Our Lives, Brief Encounter, and The Killers. The 1952 cinematography nominees included Death of a Salesman and a Streetcar Named Desire, A Place in the Sun, based on both a play and a book, and Strangers on a Train, based on Patricia Highsmith's first novel. So many great movies based on books and plays, like Beckett, The Pumpkin Eater, A Boy and His Dog, Rollerball, The Princess Bride, Congo, The Scarlet Letter, Jackie Brown, The Deep End, The Gray, The Woman in Black, and Top Gun Maverick, which I'm very much looking forward to revisiting. Get the source books at thenextreel.com slash originals. Start your next read or reread from the movies we've covered. Visit thenextreel.com slash originals today. All right, Andy, Letterbox. it's time for Letterbox. What are you going to do? Where are you going to steal stars to you can give from other movies so you can give this one? 10 full stars because of your absurd enthusiasm for this movie i just i loved it i mean it really knocked my socks off this is an easy five stars and a heart for me um i just was really uh taken by the story by the characters it just i mean just the performances alone are five stars i mean it just is such a strong film so that's where i sit with this one i'll give it four stars and a heart i um because i like talking about it there you go Four stars and a heart. See, look at me. I'm a real glass half. I'm a real glass four stars full guy. <laughs> okay. Well, remember, you can find us over on Letterboxd. I'm Soda Creek Film. Pete is Pete Wright. So check us out, follow us, and uh, join us in the conversation over there. So what did you think about A Streetcar Named Desire? We would love to hear your thoughts. Hop into the Show Talk channel over in our Discord community, where we're going to be talking about it this week. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Letterboxd giveth, Andy. As Letterboxd always doeth. Mm. I went down to the bottom of the barrel because I wanted to see if there were people who were conflicted. You know, like me. Where'd you go? Did you go? You went for the popular kids? I went high. I wanted to hang out with the popular kids. That is correct. Do you want to, do you want to go first? Do you want me to go first? I'll go first. I was, you know, at first, I, I mean, it's hard to pick because so many of them are just all about how hot Marlon Brando is. And <laughs> there were a lot of those. But I landed on Mia's four and a half star. It's the second time within a month that Mia reviewed it. And I, it just cracks me up. The way I lived almost 22 years on this earth and always thought the name of this play was A Street Cat Named Desire. <laughs> And they unsuccessfully waited for an animal the first time I watched this. 
That's funny. Um, I have uh, Bardia Kodadadi, uh, who gives it a half star. It says, me and my friend watched this in three parts. Part one, I was so excited about watching a classic movie with Marlon Brando in it. And at first we were like, okay, it's not bad. Let's see what happens. But after an hour, we were desperately trying not to fall asleep and agreed to finish it another time. Part two, we had an unfinished business and we had to watch another hour of that boring. But after a while, my friend and I had to go out and I was really happy because I couldn't bear it. And part three, we watched it at 1.5 speed. And it was still boring, and I didn't give the slightest about what was happening. And after two effing hours and four effing minutes, it was finally over. This film is just a Marlon Brando yelling at everyone and two sisters crying like babies and some random people shouting Stella and Blanche. (laughs) Oh, I don't dislike the movie that much. (laughs) Thanks. Thanks, Letterboxd. You're the best. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms, but in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM, and it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content, and we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15-plus years, Transistor has been, hands down, the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world... Go to thenextreel.com slash transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today. <laughs>